In Diana Evans's previous book, we were introduced to the couple Melissa and Michael. That novel, Ordinary People, was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, the Rathbones Folio Prize and the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction. It was also beloved by readers, and so many of those will be delighted to hear that her latest novel, A House for Alice, continues their story, together with that of Melissa's family, headed up by her mother, the titular Alice. I sat down with Diana to talk about being driven by your characters, the complexities of family dynamics, and why there will never be any place like home. Diana, you have a new novel, A House for Alice, and I wonder whether actually I can ask you to introduce us to, I guess, the sort of, yeah, your elevator pitch, if you like, but also maybe to introduce us to the family, because it's quite an extended family, and you will know all of these people far better than I do. So please tell us a little bit about A House for Alice. Okay, yeah, so it's, it's, in some ways, it's the sequel to the last novel, Ordinary People, in which we followed the the 13-year relationship between Melissa and Michael, the two protagonists. And Melissa's mother was, of course, Alice, who has become the, the central protagonist of this novel, because I decided that I hadn't finished with the characters in Ordinary People. I could still... They were still with me. I could hear them talking in my head. And I had found Alice in particular so alive and almost off the page as I was writing. I just wanted more of her. So so the action in A House for Alice is centred around her desire to go back to Nigeria to see out her days to the end of her life after the death of her husband. And her three daughters have differing opinions about this proposed move. One of them, Melissa, um, doesn't want her to go, but wants her to have the wish that her heart desires. Another of the children, who's the eldest daughter, Adele, thinks it's a ridiculous idea and is completely against it. (laughs) And then Carol, who is the middle child, also wants her mom to have her wish and she's probably the most reckless as as Adele would have it at thinking you know we should just let her just let her do what she wants to do even though she's an elderly woman and she's effectively proposing to go and live thousands of miles away in her old age with her children far too far away to really look after her so um those are the four central characters but we also have Michael the the romance between Michael and Melissa is not yet over. Michael is now married to a singer called Nicole, who um, is also quite big. Uh, she's quite a big presence in the novel. So yeah, those, those are the that's the the cast. I would say. Oh, oh there's also Damien and and Stephanie, <laughs> who were the second couple in Ordinary People, um, and they also return. In, in this novel, but as almost like a subplot, da- Damien's daughter Avril has has gone missing, and uh, we find Damien in Paris looking for her. So the novel follows that story as well. So there's lots of different strands in it. So it's quite difficult to to handle actually. Um, but I did want to do something that had this sense of expansiveness mm. to it. I wanted to follow lots of different people. Um, 
and different generations. So there's three generations in the novel. Uh, so I wanted this kind of orchestral feel and to somehow feel like I was spanning the entirety of life, of, of human life, in this story about family and, and love, romantic love, familial love. Mm. So, yeah, it was a big project. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested to, to know about, the sort of, I suppose, the beginnings of it, because as you say, with um, Melissa and Michael in Ordinary People, obviously the, the, the task of writing a novel, you must have finished Ordinary People, it goes out into the world, and the fantastic reaction from readers to that book um, and from critics as well. And I wonder how soon it was before you considered the idea of revisiting some of those characters, because, of course, most novelists would finish a book and they'd be on to sort of the next thing. Or was it were they always there and always tempting you to get back on the page again? No, when I finished Ordinary People, I really thought it, it was it was over. Mm. And um, I was working on a children's novel, actually. And I just found that I couldn't, I wasn't, my heart wasn't really in it. And there were certain things happening around me in, in our very tumultuous political climate, such as Grenfell, the fire at Grenfell, and the, the Windrush scandal, and the kind of disgraceful behaviour of the Tory government. And, and I felt that this fantastical stories sorry this fantastical children's adventure story that I was trying to write wasn't really where my heart was Mm. I wanted to do something that felt more substantial I also felt that the the project of visibilizing uh, the black British middle class or the kind of lives that I know and that are familiar to me that project felt like it was much larger than I, I had originally um, envisaged mm. and and so it was that kind of feeling that was with me and then I began to hear the voices especially Nicole Michael's wife when it occurred to me that Michael was married mm. that was the spark where I thought ah okay I think there's possibly another novel here and I love the idea of trilogies actually um I'm, I was really influenced by the John Updike tetralogy, the Rabbit Run novels, mm-hmm. and also uh, the Richard Ford. There's books that I've come across that are, that are part of trilogies that I didn't even realise as well, yeah. like the Chinua Achebe um, tr- trilogy of Things Fall Apart, and um, Ben Okri has also done a trilogy. And I love this idea of, of novels that are, that are connected to one another, but mm-hmm. they don't. Uh, you can't necessarily call them a, 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 a sequel. It's it's like a it's a connected novel where it follows a, a a group of people who you might have seen in another story who who mm. then become um, front and center of the new story. I just love the idea of books being interconnected, but also being self-contained at the same time. That's really interesting because, as you say, it's sort of it's not so much like the books are in a series and and sort of that closely connected. But mm. I suppose that thing of writing within the same universe, um, and even more so in your case, you know, taking characters and, and developing them further and giving. The, I mean, I think a lot of readers have that thing where they have a close connection to a book 
And they will often ask an author, like, is there any chance you might write another book with these characters or can we find out more about that? And of course, often authors don't want to, but it's really interesting that you have, have wanted to sort of extend the storytelling in, in those directions. Yeah. yeah, I think I'd spent so much time as well um, building the ground of, of Ordinary People. Ordinary People mm. took me seven years and and the action only really covers one year. Mm. And I felt that with the foundation that had been built with that novel, there's there's so much more um, room for, for building upwards, you know, for for new rooms and new stories <laughs> and um and the characters felt they just felt so immediate and alive to me and I was genuinely curious to see where they where they went especially with Michael and Melissa to see how that relationship developed because it just felt so unfinished to me there's something epic about their love story to me they're two people who are just so uh, right for each other yeah and meant for each other but um, there are kind of social forces and psychological forces that make it so difficult for them to 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 exist happily in their love. And I was kind of really intrigued by that idea. I wanted to really pull it apart and, and investigate what, what it is that makes it so difficult for them to work. Does that mean that with, as you said, the, the work that you had done on Ordinary People... And the wish to see, you said that, you, you know, you wanted to see where they would go, Melissa and Michael. Does that mean that you literally were open to seeing where the writing would take you? Or did you plan out what might happen to them in this book? No, I never know what's going to happen at the end of the books. I always just begin with a premise. Hmm. Even at the end of Ordinary People, I didn't know whether Michael and Melissa would be together or not. Right up until just before the last chapter when it occurred to me that. Okay, well, if they don't break up, then there's almost no point to the whole novel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you kind of realise what the book is about at the end of the, of the book when you've done it. Yeah. You look back and see what you've done. And I realised that I'd written a story about a breakup, but I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> I was just following these these characters and, and following their dynamics and their interactions. And it was the same uh, this time as well. I didn't know um, whether uh, Michael was going to stay with his wife, Nicole, Mm. Uh, what was going to happen uh, with him and Melissa, were they really finished or not? I didn't even know if Alice was going to go back home or not, right right up until the um, before the, the last chapter where I realised that um, I wanted to give somebody in the book what they wanted mm-hmm. because nobody really got what they wanted. <laughs> um, and I, I got to the end and thought, okay, someone has to... Um, someone has to get their wish and I and I wanted it to be Alice because in a way the book is a it's dedication to to Alice it's mm. it's kind of given her a voice this elderly Nigerian woman who's the kind of character who, who we just don't see in in our British fiction the book is really I see it as as her voice yeah and um so that so the prose sometimes slips into Alice's voice um sometimes the, the, the cadences shift a little bit and the English becomes a little bit broken. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so and it was the same with Michael and Melissa. They weren't necessarily going to be together at the end. They have this that walk through um, the Grenfell site at the end and there's a suggestion there that, that they might find their way back to each other. So mm. the possibility has been laid, but it's still not, it's not conclusive. 
So you're opening up the ground for another novel here, Diana. Yeah, well, I think, I don't know, maybe um, maybe there might be a, a last instalment. Maybe it is a trilogy. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Um, one, of the, one of the lines, actually, that Melissa uh, says, or, or thinks, rather, um, when she's with Michael, is that she, she wants to tell him how lonely the family can make you feel, which I thought was a really interesting line because this book in many ways is, is about family dynamics. Um, but each member of that family has got their own stuff that they're dealing with, actually. But could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by saying that a, a family can actually make you feel quite lonely? Yeah, well, I, I think Melissa there is referring to um, the way she feels in the, the kind of the family environment that... Um, this capsule that that you're that you've grown up in and that you've entered the world within, um, you can't hide. You can't hide within it, mm. and it's it's almost like people know you too well. Um, so there's an element of yourself that almost can't surface, um, and and only really surfaces when you're in in the outside world. So there's an element of not being able to be yourself around mm. your family, not being able to be your true self because they because they know you too well. Um, and I, I that's something that I've that I've personally felt um, around my family. I think uh, there's an element of just not really feeling seen. And I think Melissa and Damien are two people who've who, who've who've grown up in uh, this kind of family dynamic where there's this patriarchal figure. Who has dominated their their household, hmm. and I think that has made them uncomfortable in the family atmosphere, and that they they've kind of spent their lives searching for a place beyond that, um, that has the same level of of comfort and love that is offered in the family context, hmm. but doesn't have that kind of threat or sense of peril to it, and it means that. Um, in, in their own family context that they enter into as adult people, they can't quite relax. Mm. Um, and they're, they're looking for this self that has been smothered by their own family childhood experiences. And they're, they're wanting for that self to exist freely and openly and peacefully in their, in their new newly designed family, but they can't. And I think that's what Melissa is referring to, that there's a central kind of self that is invisibilized by family life. Mm. There was another line that jumped out to me in the book, which was um, somebody who said, families are complicated things. In every family, there's a sacrifice. Could you tell me a little bit about what that means? Yeah. Um, well, sometimes it's the middle child, isn't it? <laughs> <Who has> the <laughs> or it's the eldest child or it's the youngest child. I, I think, um, I think it's a similar kind of thing that there's, there was, there's so much baggage in families, even mm. in the happiest of families. I mean, in my own, um, life, lots of people, lots of people I know come from dysfunctional families. I know very few people who, who come from happy, <laughs> happy families, and I think the one person that I do know who who had a happy family, I, I just feel very strange in that environment. I, yeah. I feel like, okay, well, where's the, 
where's the pain? What, what's all this kind of joking and joking around and happiness? There must be some pain there. Yeah. And I think um, the, the kind of the pain, it, it can sometimes congeal in the one person and and the one person gets, um, you know, the short end of the straw, as it were, mm. the short straw, you know. Um, yeah. And and there's a, there's this kind of difficulty in sharing that with other members of the family because there's this I think in my family there was a sense of um silence that things were brushed under the carpet and you didn't really really you didn't really talk about things and I think that made it um difficult for particular members of the family to just to kind of exist you know mm. it's really interesting that isn't it as you say that the the families will often not talk about the difficult things um until there's some kind of pressure release valve which will often be the death of a parent or indeed of both parents and then suddenly all the stuff that the children have been keeping sort of under the carpet as it were can sort of come out because there's no nobody there to tell them not to talk about it anymore and at the beginning of this book obviously the the patriarch Cornelius um, dies and we start to see the sort of slightly dysfunctional things with the three daughters in in as you say in dealing with what Alice wants and their different reactions to that which is quite a complicated family dynamic isn't it sort of with those competing interests yeah I, yeah it was it was really difficult to um to get the balance right between people's different reactions because mm. um I think this is a family that has formed a, a kind of superficial closeness around um, the conventional need for a family to just get along with each other, while at the same time there's there's all these kind of grievances bubbling under the surface, that when Cornelius dies, um, that kind of veil of, of um, everyone getting along, it, it kind of dissipates. Mm. It's very difficult for... Uh, for them to con- continue pretending, it's almost as if the the patriarch was the was the lid, and the lid is now gone. So everything's kind of ex- exposed. Mm. I think that often does happen in families when there's when there's a death of of a parent. I think siblings um, there's this responsibility that they share um, to look after the remaining parent, mm. um, and within that there's that there's the dynamics that emerge, you know, um, some siblings get on better than others and, you know, things things are said and that terrible things are felt and there's no way of hiding it anymore because you're having to kind of work together. Mm. Um, I think it can be a very difficult time and families often break up in, um, in that kind of middle age uh, period where the children are of middle age and the parents become elderly because... The parents is the parent essentially is kind of regressing to the state of almost childlike um, dependence on somebody else, mm. and and the tables are turned. And in this in this book, um, I was trying to write about midlife, the midlife sandwich, as well, um, that period of midlife where Melissa and Michael are at, where they have to deal with elderly parents, but also young children and the difficulty of managing those two responsibilities at the same time which is which is tough and uh, I was talking to a friend about it and she 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 told me 
what that phrase was, midlife sandwich. I'd never heard it before. No. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> what it is, isn't it? You're, you're caught between two very deep and intense responsibilities. And, yeah. And at so the same time, you're trying to, to, to live your life and, and satisfy yourself. And it's incredibly difficult. And people really, can really um, rub up against each other in negative ways. Yeah, that's really interesting because one, I suppose we've mentioned that there's the death of Cornelius at the beginning of the novel, but there is a sense of mortality throughout the book that actually comes from all the generations, not just from the older generation. Um, and this idea that none of us knows how long we have and that therefore we should maybe be doing more or saying more of what we actually want from life. And I suppose that fits in quite well with the idea of the sort of midlife sandwich where you might be caring for somebody older and younger than you and not actually caring for yourself yeah exactly and and often the place where you can find some kind of refuge from that is it in love in your romantic relationship and and that's what melissa and michael are faced with melissa is searching for um for love in her own life and and just finding it terribly unsatisfying um, and she's in this awful relationship with this guy that she really doesn't feel anything for <laughs> um, and 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 at the same time dreaming of of Michael uh, and Michael also is feeling um, he's in this wonderful marriage but it, there's something that's not quite right so they're kind mm-hmm. of both they're both haunted by each other really um, and that's where it's almost as if that that place of of this romantic love, that is the place where they can feel alive in the context of all um, this other stuff that's going on around them um, that are imposing on their ability to, to be free. You know, love is a place of freedom in this case. I wanted to return, if I could, to, to something you mentioned at the beginning, is you say that the, the book is almost sort of framed by um, the Grenfell fire. Um, and its impact and and it was the impact of that that actually sort of took you from the thing you thought you were writing into into writing this book but I suppose there are many ways that you could write about the Grenfell fire including a sort of a, a novel that actually was about that but why did you decide to sort of have that as the 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 background framing if you like of the book rather than sort of writing into it I didn't feel that I was able to write into it because it's too, it's too recent. Mm-hmm. It's it's too fresh. I, I didn't feel like it was my trauma to write into. I feel like there's with with traumatic events, there's a there's a sense of ownership that is required um, in in really going deeply into the story. And so in this case, I felt like it was one of the things that makes me want to write about. A, a political um, event or something big that happens in the world is that it's almost too big to not mm-hmm. write about. I, I felt that I had to write about it. I, I felt a sense of personal responsibility as as a writer, as an artist. I do think that that artists have a have a call to record things, um, to record trauma or or national pain. Um, and to not let people who have been wronged be be forgotten. Um, 
so yeah I felt that I that I had to have it in the in the background but it could only be in the background because mm. it wasn't my my right to uh to place it front and center of the action and I'm writing a story about contemporary London as yeah. well it's set over three years beginning with the Grenfell fire in 2017 and it goes right up until spring 2020 so um yeah writing about contemporary London how can you not include Grenfell that that would be um that would be a huge uh disservice to the 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 truth of the the project I think yeah it also provides I suppose in a way a really interesting sort of I was going to say like a um like a not a counterpoint but it sort of provides something interesting to the story of Alice and her decisions about wanting to return to Nigeria this idea of what she sees as her home because I think obviously with the Grenfell fire and the people who were living in that building who were affected by it with a lot of them being migrant um communities um must raise a question in the minds of people who have come to England and made it their home about how they fit in, how they're treated and how an event like that brings all of those things to the forefront. Is that fair? Yeah, there, there is definitely a connection between Alice's yearning for home and the, the way that the Grenfell fire was, was treated by, um, by the institutions that were supposed to be keeping those people safe. There was, there was just this feeling that, I mean, the way it was covered and the way it was kind of downplayed in the media, I think, at first, and um, and the fact that there weren't any proper, there weren't proper uh, fire safety procedures at work in the building. And, that, mm. and I think that was allowed to happen because it was a block um, largely full of, of immigrants and um, people who weren't important enough to the kind of the, the capitalist project to be um, to be given that time to be made safe um, and I think it's I, I think it's a huge statement of how um, there is this sense of xenophobia I think in in British society mm. that there's even though British society is is made up of people who have come from from elsewhere. I mean, the British nation is is kind of built on conquest, as much as much of the Western world is built on conquest. Yet, mm. um, yet there's this inherent xenophobia um, that is in our midst, and that is increasing. I think because of the political rhetoric from um, from the Tory government, and so who who has who is at home in the UK now? I think especially in London, London, which is about almost 50% people of colour. Mm. Now, me personally, I feel at home in London, much more at home in London than I do um, in the rest of the UK. And I think that's the same for um, for lots of people of colour. But, but there are other cities like Birmingham and Liverpool where um, it's majority people of colour. But there is this there is this questioning of who whose home is the UK and um, is it really possible to feel at home in the UK as an immigrant or is that an, a never-ending um, kind of yearning and 
would Alice feel at home if she had been had a different experience here? Mm. You know, so I, I guess I was trying to um, dissect what home means to to the different characters, mm. um, generationally speaking. I think Alice is somebody who has lived here for 50 years but never really integrated um, and has always felt very, very alienated. Mm. At, at the same time, her children belong to a second generation who were born here, but there's still this sense of questioning around whether they belong here or not. And their mother, Alice, is really um, that this 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 model of that means that they belong to somewhere else mm-hmm. is the symbol of the, of their belonging elsewhere yet she feels very alienated here and then the the children Melissa and Michael's children who, who third generation um I think their um right to feel at home in the UK is also questioned there's mm-hmm. I think with race there's this layer there's there's this extra layer to to everything to the way life is lived mm-hmm. you know it affects where you decide to live or where you decide to send your children. Um, in Alice's case, where do you die? You know, where is home? So so there's this kind of fundamental extra layer of questioning to everything that all of these characters feel um, within these different generations. It's a complicated thing. Yeah, it's, it's a very complicated thing. It's hard to pin down. Um, you, you've hinted that there there may be more to tell um, about Melissa and Michael's story, um, but I'm also interested to know whether you are thinking about returning to that children's book that you were planning to write earlier. I am, yeah. I, I'm the kind of person who has to finish everything I start, <laughs> so I will finish it. Um, I'm not sure when, but... I, the, the characters are alive for me, and I think if it feels alive, then then it has to be finished. We just have to find the right time. Yeah, it's, but it's interesting that you you feel, as you say, that your your heart has to be in it in order to be able to do it justice. Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, it's hard to sit down by yourself every day, five days a week, um, and work on something that you don't have faith in. Faith is mm. is the central element that you need to to sit down every day and to get the work done. So with each book, I've always had a really strong desire for it to exist. Um, and I, I do still have that desire for my for my children's book. I just have to find the right, I just have to find the right moment in the right context. We shall look forward to hearing more at some point in the future, Dana. But for the moment, thank you so much for speaking to me about A House for Alice. It's fantastic. Thank you, Will. Thanks for having me on. A House for Alice is out now, and for a limited time, you can find signed copies on waterstones.com.